0: let's just be real. As people of color, there are certain things our Caucasian brothers and sisters can get away with that we cannot. That meant all the disrespect, all the harassment, I had to calculate my responses because I knew the playing field was not even. And this is no judgment. I love my Caucasian brothers and sisters in this game, but the game is just kind of different in almost any industry. Whether you're an architect or a comedian, it doesn't matter. It's that need to control your responses. It's almost like you're not not allowed to have a normal range of emotions. Because if you do, then you're the angry Black woman or the sassy Latin woman. And so there's always a need for that, unfortunately, for people of color until the perception of who we are changes. I'm Gina Brion, and I'm a modern minority.
2: But we're no one's model minority.
1: This is a show about all of you for all of us. Today, we're talking to Gina Brion, a native New Yorker who was born in the Bronx in New York, just like me. She's a Puerto Rican actress, comedian and writer, and she's a new mom. Gina's got a one-hour comedy special called The Floor's Lava, which is now available on Amazon Prime Video, and she's also co-host of a podcast called Mess in Progress, The Homegirl's Guide to Self-Help. Gina, like so many of our stand-up comedian guests, was not just hilarious and funny, but very thoughtful, so insightful, and pretty open, too, about her her own experiences and her own vulnerabilities being a woman of color in comedy. What would you think of her?
2: Yeah, it was so interesting hearing her stories of coming up. I mean, she got bit by the comedy bug early. I mean, she started performing at 17 and then just kind of started really working at it because she loved the game so much. And, you know, she has all the appearances, right, on Comedy Central, on HBO, on E! On TV, etc. And she's just working. And, And her material is not just funny, insightful. And what was so funny not funny is, uh, (laughs) the nature of the conversation is like, we just dug into those insights. I mean, talking about honestly, how, well, we talked a lot about code switching, you know, it's a Mm -hmm. term that's getting thrown around a lot, but to really understand what does it mean and how it affects the way some more than others have to change their life. It's something we dug in a lot on.
1: Yeah. I liked how she told us a story about how she completely switched the narrative in that pretty poignant conversation which you guys will hear about with a potential agent. And what I thought was really great about that is it's that story is so common for so many of us, right? We've been there. We've been in conversations where we've wanted to say the F word to someone in their face. And instead, we found 10 other non-curse words to describe our sentiment at that moment. And I think she's Part of the reason why she is so successful is not just because she's talented and all of those other obvious things, but it's because she has that gift of being able to seamlessly move through situations, but to do it in a really truthful way. I think that was something that I really learned from her in this conversation. She's known from the beginning that she's wanted to be a stand-up comedian, and she has pursued that literally almost her whole life, even if it didn't seem like the most obvious path for her.
2: Yeah. So if you enjoy our conversation with Gina, you definitely should check out her stand-up material streaming pretty much everywhere. There's streaming stuff and her podcast weekly mess in progress is great. So we hope you'll really enjoy our conversation with our new friend Gina in the Bronx. <laughs> Gina, welcome to the pod. It is so great to have you here. You
1: already have us cracking up, Gina. I am so excited to be talking
0: to you. (laughs) Yes, that was my plan all along.
2: (laughs) All right, Gina. So I think people know who you are, but I guess the question we all want to know is, where are you from?
0: Well, I am born and raised in the South Bronx. And yeah, in a pretty residential neighborhood that was just a couple blocks away from the official hood. (laughs) Yeah, I was a bike ride away from the hood and I took my bike there often to visit friends and just to ride around. So I had that constant duality in my life of living in this little residential part of the Bronx, but then going to the hood where all my friends lived and to where near my school was. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I guess, did anyone ever ask you where you're really from?
0: All the time. All the time. I get that question because people don't understand because I'm not like, I don't look Caucasian. So people can't figure out what I am because they, they can't place me. I'm not light-skinned enough to be <laughs> considered Caucasian. I'm like beige. So people are like, what's beige? What, what country is beige from? <laughs> is there a beige Obama or something? Where are you from? I am Puerto Rican and my daddy is very light-skinned and my mom is very olive-skinned. So they look like an interracial couple, but they are not. They are both Puerto Ricans.
2: I did this kid's book for my daughter where I had to draw a bunch of... It's about my grandparents' in refugee journey from like India to Africa to England to America. And I drew the whole thing and I had to get colored pencils for the colors of the skin. Because black is not the color to color black people. Brown mm. is not the color to color brown people. And, and it's, it's like Crayola makes this 20 gradation of brown set and it's mm-hmm. so awesome. It's so, and I, we
1: have the same thing. It's so awesome.
2: I feel like I need to just memorize all those colors. Like so be like, "Oh, Gina's burnt umber." Right. <laughs> oh, right. There it is. I mean, umber. A yellow ochre,
0: dark beige or a light beige or a medium beige. I don't know. I'm one of the beiges.
2: <laughs> so, what was it like growing up in the Bronx? I mean, you got any any interesting, memorable stories from those days riding your bike around?
0: I mean, I have a ton of crazy stories from living in the Bronx, everything from having a gun pulled on me to me and my friends having to create these, what I would call broke people games. Cause even living I, in the I, I hear that involves movies,
2: lava. I hear that involves lava.
0: It involves lava. <laughs> it does. The floor is lava on Amazon prime. Shameless plug. Yeah. I remember growing up in the Bronx and just everybody being scared of where I was from. Anytime I told somebody else from the Bronx, it was like, "Oh my!" And I'm like, "No, but it's actually really nice if you just go there and see- <laughs> if you just go there and see it. It's actually not. I mean, there's, there's a parts- zoo. Yeah, you're, They've you're got, got the
2: gardens. gardens. Yeah, yeah like I'm of like, there's parts I'll go right? to,
0: but flowers and dogs and there are people yeah, that people have the dogs street. and families yeah. and some people have chickens. It gets crazy. Everybody <laughs> just come visit the Bronx. It's not that bad. <laughs> it hasn't been
2: gentrified yet. It's okay.
0: It hasn't been gentrified yet because people don't want to go that far out. The Bronx is deep. My commute into the city was about like an hour because it's a 2 fare zone where I lived. So I had to take the bus to the train, which is unheard of in Heavens. my life right now. I was <laughs> like, what did I do for so long? Because I look at the bus now and I'm like, I-, I would rather walk. I will walk, sir. I will not get yeah. on that bus. Bus people yeah. are a different breed.
1: What was a typical day in your childhood life. Tell us a story from your childhood.
0: A typical day, depending on how far back we go, but still most of my days, even up until high school, my mom would wake us up pretty early in the morning. We would wake up around five or six in the morning. My mom had to do this because most of the time she had to go to work and she was usually, if if times were tough money-wise, I had to go in so I could get breakfast at school. Mm-hmm. So There was a lot of that that went on where it was depending on where my parents were sort of financially at the time. But a lot of times what my mom wanted to do was kind of get us up and going early in the morning. And I actually appreciate that a lot. I appreciate that she did that for us because I love waking up early. Now I love waking up early before anybody else is up, before the sun is up, just to have that time to myself. And it was something I watched my mom do every morning because if I was up at five, my mom was up at four. Right. So she yeah. would sit in the living room with her coffee and her Ritz crackers. Shout out to Ritz crackers. <laughs> and she would just wait and then wake us up. And there's a couple times that I would wake up earlier than expected and just see my mom having her me time or just let her enjoy it. But it was something that it was a pleasant memory. And then we would be ushered off to school. And that's when my school day would start. I'd have breakfast in school and then I'd go to homeroom and talk with my friends, my little group of friends. I always had a very small group of friends. I was never, I was very shy. People are usually pretty shocked to find out how shy I actually still am. I'm very shy and very socially awkward when I am out. <laughs> I don't talk to a lot of people. I sit by myself, but that's more my mother's personality. My mom was always the silent observer. My dad is the boisterous, funny, silly guy, and my mom is the straight man she's just, she's funny unbeknownst to anybody. Like when she don't mean to be funny, she's (laughs) funny.
2: Those are the funniest kind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The timing and the pacing,
0: right? 100%. My mom, mom is just always like that. And to this day, she's still, so she'll just say something so unexpected. It just makes you laugh. But because my mom was like that, I was very much like that as a young person. And now as an adult, I sort of like to observe, sit back and observe. My mom would always say this to me, Before I left the house, it's one of my favorite quotes from my mom. She would always say, keep your mouth shut and keep your eyes and your ears open. And I always thought, I think about that so often now because what my mom was telling me was to listen more than I speak so that I can learn more, to observe more and comment less so that I can soak it all in. And I think about how they the brilliance of that statement and what it carried in it. And so like that was just how my mom what my mom instilled in us. So I was like that in school. I would just sit and I would observe and I would watch and I made friends with the school bullies because I would make them laugh. So the school bully, this girl named Ruby, there was just the boy bully was bullying me one day. But because I was friends with Ruby and I made her laugh, she went up to him and was like, you're going to stop bullying her. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to stop today. This is the last day of bullying my friend. And he never bothered me again after that day because she was scary. What grade would that have been? Roughly. That that would have been, I want to say, that would have been in junior high. Yeah, And it probably would have been, I would equate it to a sophomore year of junior high, I guess you could say.
1: Seventh grade, eighth grade.
0: Yeah, around seventh grade, maybe, or something like that. Sophomore, junior year of junior high school. But yeah, I was thankful for that. I was thankful that I could make people laugh because it saved my butt.
2: What did you want to be when you grew up back then?
0: Everything. I knew I wanted to be a performer. I didn't know in what way. I was too shy to be a singer. I didn't really have the discipline or the body of a dancer. So as much as I loved dancing, and I still respect it so much as an art form and singing too, it wasn't something I felt like I could. I had a lot of passion for, is the best way to put it. Enough passion where it was like, I have to do this for the rest of my life. When it came to comedy, it was just the first time I experienced stand-up comedy, I knew it in my heart. I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to do this. I don't know how. I have no idea how. But I want to do that for the rest of my life. And I felt it in my bones.
2: Was that an experience of
0: performing?
2: Or was that an experience of going to a club for the first time? Or was it just watching Richard Pryor like the rest of us?
0: What it was, was literally time? watching... Because my parents would sometimes play certain stand-up comics. Like, but they, A lot of them were in Spanish. And I didn't I have a great grasp of the language back then. I'm much better now. But... I could have really fully appreciated it back then, but I knew certain things, certain things were funny and I was glad that my parents were kind of cool enough to let me listen to it. But the first comic that I really saw and connected with was Brett Butler and I watched her and I remember just thinking, being in awe of this beautiful, intelligent Southern woman on stage, basically controlling this room of people, commanding their attention with only her wit and she was so sharp and so funny and so sarcastic and i was about 14 years old and i got everything she was saying but then again i i hung out with adults like that's what i rolled with adults all the time so i had kind of understood their world a little more than the average 14 year old but everything she was saying it just resonated and i was i don't know how to do it but i want to do that for the rest of my life and i just became consumed and obsessed with learning everything about stand up comedy because a month after that, I had seen George Lopez on the Spanish channel, and I was like, "I seen a woman, and I seen you know a, Latin a brown guy, person, so, yeah, yeah." I'm like, yeah. "That's me." I'm like, "That's me. That's me." I'm a combination. <laughs> I'm a hybrid mix of those two things. And so, in my mind, I was like, "This is just a, I guess I wouldn't have labeled it back then, but I think I knew like this is a sign. This is a thing. I have to go for this. I have to try it." And so. I just continued to be obsessed and my parents were very supportive of it. They let me listen to comedy and let me watch comics and I'm I'm so thankful. When yeah, was so the how first d- time you performed? It would be I mean, technically my first performance was in the hallway of my high school, right in front of the auditorium <laughs> of for course, all of my yeah. drama my drama nerd friends. And I grabbed a hairbrush as a microphone and it was gross and crusty. <laughs> <laughs> but I did not care. It was my little microphone. And I was just doing little jokes about high school life. It'd be like, hey, did you see what Mr. Fine did in fifth period? It's like stuff like that. And so it was stuff they could oh, so relate to. so you would to. just set
1: this up on your own. You were like, hey, it's Tuesday at two o'clock. I got some funny things to say. Let me stand. It was
0: hallway. a little more yeah. random than that, where it was like, we would be just sitting around and then everybody would be like, hey, Gina, like, you're funny. Like Tell us some funny stories. And I'd be like, okay. And then I would just do some funny stories. And it just felt like my first attempt at stand up and then the first club i did was stand up new york my mom entered me and my sister in a contest called the funniest person from the bronx and that was the first How time I, stepped, but I was i think i was about 18 Whoa, at the time wow, i was about 18 or wow. 17 or 18 years old and i stepped on the stage for the first time and man it was something else it was something else i wasn't nervous i wasn't anxious i was so excited The nerves didn't help me till the second time I I got on stage and I bombed horrifically the second time I got on stage.
1: What was different about the first time versus the second time? What happened the second time? The first time,
0: you know what it was? The first time all of my friends were there. The second time it was just a regular crowd. And I think in my head at the time I was like, oh, wow, it's going to be different because these people don't know me. They don't mm. know who I am. Are they going to find me funny? And I think that thought process just created a lot of nervousness and a lot of nervous energy. And I I just remember just, I bombed so bad. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't ever want to do this again. But oh. that was a lie. That was a lie. <laughs> we determined that was a lie. And I went Back within the next couple of days, I was already back at the comic strip, I think, hanging out in the back of the comic strip, just watching people perform. Because I couldn't walk away from it, no matter how hard it got. I was like, I just, there was that little voice that was just like, just keep pushing through. Just keep pushing through. This is it. This is it. You just have to stick with it.
1: That's great. So you knew at a young age, your parents supported you, and you've pretty much been on this path. Was there ever a moment where you were like, no, I'm going to quit and become a veterinarian?
0: Every morning. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Every morning I wake up, I'm like, ah, I don't know. Good. I mean, the business itself is so, it's not a financially stable business. It's, it's a difficult business. It wears on you emotionally. It wears on you physically. It takes a lot of attitude adjustments to not quit, to not let the down times, the hard times, the times when there's not a lot of work coming in. And you're wondering where your next paycheck is going to come from, especially having done this and through a pandemic and that being a first time ever situation for so many people where it was like, what do I for do sure. now? I have no other discernible skills. I haven't written a resume in over 10 years. And the one thing I know how to do and the one thing I love doing, I'm forced to stop. And so there's plenty of moments where I thought of quitting, but I think my, my passion for what I do, I was like, oh, I just – I can't let that go. I have to find a way to make it through even the darkest of times.
2: There was this, I, I heard you on another podcast. I think it was with another comic, Jim Mandrinos, And you, oh, you were telling the story. Yeah, it, it was such a good conversation. And you were talking about one of the first times you got on stage. And I think you were—you got a ride back from him. Mm-hmm. And you asked him, will I ever be, or was I a great comic? Can you talk about like what he told you back and kind of how that started? Oh,
0: yeah. I remember that day very well. I asked him if I was a good comic. I said, do you think I'm a good comic? And he said, no. (laughs) He said, not yet. I think I was in such a place where I felt like such a blank slate when it came to comedy and that there was so much to learn that I didn't let that really upset me. I just, I was like, okay, he said not yet.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: all hope is not lost. He said, not yet. He was like, you just you just need more experience. He's like, keep getting on stage, keep writing, and keep doing it. I can see. I can see you being great. Yeah. But you're not there yet. And I'm so thankful for that conversation because it stuck with me all these years later, where it's like, I know exactly what he was saying to me. And he wasn't trying to put me down. And I think so many people. Because we're consumed with our egos and our egos run everything. So many people would have heard that and crumbled or would have heard that and felt insulted and got angry and and would have went down a negative path. And I, I just kind of looked at it and I was like, okay, well, I am just starting out. And he is a more experienced comic. And he didn't say no, not at all. He said no, not yet, which means there's something there. And I just kept concentrating on the not yet.
2: Yeah. It's kind of a very Obi-Wan, Kenobi, Yoda sort of thing, right? Yeah,
0: he totally yoda that. How,
2: I mean, so many of us like in our day jobs, be it like startups or business shit, maybe stand-up comics, like we sometimes have to kind of change who we are or change how we behave to fit in into certain rooms. Some people call it code switching. I know you guys have talked about it a little bit on the podcast. Oh, yeah as a comic, both up and coming and now like more established with specials and credits and et cetera, like, do you find you still have to do that? Or were there moments where you had to kind of change who you were to kind of fit in?
0: I mean, definitely code switching is just a thing because, yeah, okay, let's just be real. As (laughs) brown people that exist in entertainment, as people of color that exist in entertainment, there are certain things that our Caucasian brothers and sisters can get away with that we cannot. And I'll give you an example. If I were to lose my temper because I felt disrespected, and if I were to shout at somebody or get loud with somebody or just talk in a more forceful tone, I would be looked at as that angry, crazy Latin girl. I'm not allowed to have that regular range of emotions without it being some kind of stereotype. And so with that, that meant all the disrespect, all the sexual harassment that I had gone through or that I was seeing, I had to calculate my responses, to be very calculated in my responses to these things, because I knew the playing field was not even. And I knew that Even if, and then this was something that, you know, we all used to talk about, you know, with my other friends who were people of color and comedians, where it was like, you could have, and this is no judgment. I love my Caucasian brothers and sisters in this game, but some of my best friends are white. Yeah. (laughs) Y'all could go up and you could stink up the stage every night of the week and your spots would never be taken away from you. Whereas if I went up there and I bombed or if I did bad, I was looking at a maybe a month before I would get booked again. Mm. And so it's just, the game is just kind of different. So there was a level, there was a, a need for some kind of code switching just to maintain the career where it was like, I can't, as much as I might want to go off on you because it's clear that you're disrespecting me. If I were to do that, if I were to give you that power over me, then it's only going to make me look bad, no matter how disrespectful you were. So I had to have controlled responses to things. I had to politely walk away from situations that really required somebody getting punched in the face. Mm. And so because of that, I think, I think and that's just, I think, I think that people of color go through in almost any industry, whether you're an architect or a comedian, it doesn't matter. It's that need to control your responses. It's almost like you're not allowed to have a normal range of emotions, Because if you do, then you're the angry black woman or the sassy Latin woman or the this or the that, you know? And so there's always a need for that, unfortunately, for people of color until the perception of who we are changes.
2: Has it gotten easier because either it's almost like muscle memory to do that? Or has it gotten easier because you've got I don't know, you're more established, you're you're not an up and coming fighting for stage time anymore, or it just continues to suck. It's just a different kind of suck every day.
0: Unfortunately, even when you level up, it's just, it's just now I, I don't only have to do it in comedy clubs, I have to do it in boardrooms now. Now I have to sit across from a team of people and control my responses to things. And sometimes I'm able to and sometimes I'm not what I have learned to do is become quite a wordsmith. And I think this is something that a lot of people of color end up having to become, you know, it's why they say things like, Oh, you're so articulate. Oof. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, he's so yeah. articulate for a Brown person. It's, uh, yes. Because I have to be, because what I want to say involves a lot of cuss words Yeah, and I'm going to hurt your feelings. So what I have to do now is use this double speak and fix the conversation so that your feelings don't get hurt and I don't look like a bad person. Mm. So now I have to use words and phrases and things that make you feel comfortable. And that's why it's so difficult. And that's why you see so many people of color, I think, in different careers that have high anxiety, that you know are avid supporters of therapy because they're working through a lot of this stuff. And we're all working through some trauma to a certain extent, I believe. But I think that, that having that on our shoulders is something that is so difficult to deal with. Just having to constantly code switch, having to live in that duality of like, when I go home, it's going to be a string of curse words about what just happened in that room. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I know I had to handle myself a certain way in that room. So I don't think it ever goes away. Unfortunately, that's the unfortunate news, but you do learn how to become a real gangster with words. (laughs)
2: <laughs> or, like a secret ninja assassin, right? Because
0: exactly, I will definitely tell you one of my favorite stories, please. And this is because any chance I get to crap on this individual, I will. Oh, this I was, is gonna be good. <laughs> I was in a meeting with a very ignorant person, and this ignorant person was trying to become my agent and i was with my manager at the time jenny who i love shout out to jenny who's the most amazing person in the world and this man that i was talking to the first thing he tried to do was connect with me on an ethnic level you know where he was like oh i'm i'm cuban and i was like that's cool i'm puerto rican i don't know what the two have to do with each other but okay and he was trying to sort of use that as an in now this is also to tell you that not all people of color are on your side know that too. So here we were in this meeting and this man is really just saying all the wrong things, just all the wrong things. And Jenny, who knows me very well, who knows my temperament or rather my temper, she can see me kind of boiling under the surface. And then finally he says to me, well, we can't book you in clubs because your name doesn't sell tickets. But we can start in these, basically what he was saying is we can start in these ghetto rooms. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. what he didn't want to say, but we can start in these ghetto rooms. That's where we'll build your fan base. Now, mind you, this is me already established, already having specials out already having made a name in clubs. And so what I wanted to say was a string of F words. But what I said to this man was, I looked at him and I said, well, Actually, the agent that I had prior to this was such a brilliant agent that she already set me up with relationships with several different clubs. So if you can't book me in any clubs, it speaks more to your ineptitude as an agent than it does to my popularity in the business. And then I sat back and I watched this man's world crumble. And my, my manager just kind of chuckled. And I was like, I wanted to high five myself, y'all. <laughs>
1: I want to
2: high five you right now, dude.
1: I do too. I was like, "Whoa, that's like taking a sword and just kind of, you know,
0: when the person isn't looking, cutting off all their clothes and walking
2: away. No, yeah, I saw like the Mask of Zora thing happening. <laughs> yeah. <with> yeah.
0: <laughs> it needed to be said. And I was like, you know what? This needs to be said right now because I'm not cool with how you're talking to me. And I'm about to make you aware of it. Is that the exception or the norm,
2: that sort of thing happening or 50, 50?
0: It's about 50, 50 because you get well-known enough on your own and anybody's a yes man to you. Anybody. If you, if you gain that much power and that much popularity, that's why influencers are so big now because they come with an automatic audience. And so why are influencers everywhere? Why are they hosting things? Why are they becoming actresses? Why are they in movies? Because they've done all the work themselves. They now hold all the power and they can call the shots in those rooms. You can't hate them for it. Like A lot of comics are like, ugh, influencers. I'm like, don't hate them because you're too much in your ego to fight as hard for what you want as they are. They just walk in so they've they've done the work, they got the followers they you know it's not the same as stand up yes, stand up is incredibly hard, Some would argue harder than a lot of what the influencers do, and that's fine, have that argument, but respect the game. they did it right, they walk into the room, and the industry already knows they have the power, so they will talk well, I've seen some influencers talk wild. To some of these industry people. And it is hilarious. Keep doing it. I love hearing it. Wow! Because you take the power. Once you start doing your own thing. And you realize that you can. I mean. Really look at what Dane Cook did. Look at what Gabriel Iglesias has done. Look at what Louis C.K. did. Whether you like him or not. Yeah. Yeah. Took yeah. the game and yeah. flipped it. And made the money his.
2: There's a Brown comic. I won't say who his name is. But I heard through another Brown comic comic friend of mine. I have to be careful what I say here. He knows a lot of
1: brown comics, apparently.
2: (laughs) All shades of brown, no. But they had a deal with one of the major platforms, streaming platforms. And part of their negotiation was, that's cool. We've got this thing. Thank you for putting my material on your platform. But I own all the followers of the official social account. So should we part ways? They're mine. Because Mm. I'm going to grow them. And I thought that was such a ninja move because it's yes, I want your distribution, but more valuable than your distribution, which is rented, is the ownership of the list. Yeah. The
0: ownership of the
1: connections. I bring my audience with me.
0: Yeah. Yes. And the audiences are more savvy now to how the business works and they would rather support the artist directly. So the industry now has to follow suit. That's another reason why, when you are self made and you've done all the work yourself and you own all the stuff yourself, you have so much power when you walk into that room i mean i've seen I've seen it I've seen people just the way that they speak to celebrities who have made their own and who have their own stuff and know that they don't need you. it's almost like they're grovelling mm-hmm. I
2: want to ask another question so. You have also have a podcast, right? And mess mm-hmm. in progress, which is I find it not just hilarious. I find it insightful, and oh, that's one of those things. Yeah, no, and please keep making it because it's like longer form. But there isn't any code switching on this show. This is you and your partner, Catherine. And I want to hear mm-hmm. more about like how you guys know each other. But like, just kind of saying it like it is. And I mean. Why did you decide to jump into that game versus the established platform of comedy?
0: It took me forever to want to do a podcast. People were like, you should do a podcast. You should do a podcast. You should do a podcast. And I was like, I don't know if anybody cares what I have to say. And I think at the time it was just so much like, I don't know if anybody cares what I have to say. And there's so many podcasts and then I bit the bullet. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. And Catherine originally came on just as a producer and we known each other so well. We're such good friends. As we were trying to do the first couple of episodes, Catherine was just like, this, this isn't right. There's something missing from this. And she said, why don't we do one episode together? And I was like, okay, I'm down for that. And it was like, we just fell into it so perfectly. And the back and forth was great. And it was so enjoyable that we were like, this is it. This is what, this is what it needs it needs this energy. And so we continued doing the podcast. Catherine, not only is the co-host, but she is the producer of the podcast. And so she's a brilliant producer and she sees a lot of things that I don't see because of her work for Buzzfeed and because of the other work she's done just with digital content in general. And her input was just so valuable to me because it's just like one of those things where it's like, she'll she'll tell me something. And even if I fight it at first, I can step back and see, oh, you know what? She knows way more about this than I do. This is actually her world. And it's been a learning experience, I think for both of us and watching it grow has been amazing and seeing where we are, we are now with the podcast. And we're doing a lot more episodes with just the two of us. And if we're lucky enough to have a guest, it's always great, but we've had such great back and forth Discussions about so many topics that I think I was a little bit nervous to approach at first because, as a comedian, people know one side of you. They know that one side that makes it to the stage. They don't often get to hear your insights on current events or insights on things like therapy or code switching or anything like that. And so I was a little afraid to be that vulnerable and put that much of myself out there. But Catherine is really, she's really great with making me feel 100% comfortable letting that part of myself show. And it's because naturally with her, it comes out because we are such good friends. And we initially met, I was doing this show and I won't say the name of the show because (laughs) it was awful and it was badly run. And she was part of the crew, and I didn't really know her back then, but she was on this show with me, and it, it required me to speak Spanish, and my Spanish was terrible at the time. So the clips from this show are just mortifying to watch. And Catherine and I hadn't seen each other for a long time after the show ended. And then one night at Stand Up New York, she came up to me, and she's like, I don't know if you remember me, but we worked on this show together. And I was like, Wow. That was so long ago, and we started talking, and she had shown an interest in comedy, and she wanted to meet for coffee. And we went, and we met for coffee, and I literally was like, I love this girl. I was like, she is incredible. She was smart and funny, so funny. Catherine is so funny. And she cracks me up all the time. And we just sort of became almost inseparable immediately where it was like, we were just constantly seeing each other, constantly hanging out. Whenever I was in the city, I would text her and I'd be like, Hey, why don't you come out? I'm in union square. And so we just, we've always had that kind of rapport with each other that carries into the podcast. And she's really good with current events. She stays on top of things because I do not, (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what's going on in my life let alone the world half the time but Catherine will bring up very interesting things and send me articles and send me clips and i'm so thankful for it because she sends me great stuff that she knows i'm going to connect with that are great topics so listen to the podcast because she is legitimately hilarious
1: that's so great and you probably don't have time to keep up with current events because you've got some new developments in your life in the last couple yes. months. We hear yes. that you're a new mom.
0: 100% I am. And I love every second of it. I can hear my son crying right now. That's oh. not great, but <laughs> he's in the back with my husband and I could hear him crying. And it's just like, what's crazy about motherhood? And this is the thing that just is so intense and your whole body reacts to your child crying. It yeah. is something I cannot control. When I was breastfeeding, yeah and he would cry, my boobs would literally just leak. It was literally oh, totally. just, and yeah. now when I stopped breastfeeding, my body still has this automatic reaction. When I hear him cry, it's like just all of my nerve synapses start firing. And it's like, get up, go to him, pick him up, make him feel better. It's this natural instinct that you, you can't really, you can't fight it. It's, yeah. it's, it's just this- It's
1: incredible. I know Reman and I both. Well, as you heard, he has he has. My one, boobs are not one, leaking,
2: guys. My boobs he has are not no leaking. Boobs. He has no boobs. <laughs> you but have I've no got, boobs. I've, leak.
1: Got, I've got boobs, and I've got two two little boys that are now seven and nine. And even now, like I'll be dead asleep, and if it's in the middle of the night and they're down the hall, and I hear like in the faintest little voice, I'll hear "Mama," but from like down the hall, mm-hmm. I am up. Yep. And your body just—it's a completely subconscious thing. You'll always yeah. respond to your kids in that way. It's kind of amazing.
0: It is, it's something that I find so fascinating because I noticed it right away where it was like I would hear him cry and all of a sudden I'd be filled with anxiety because yeah. it's like yeah. I, physically my body was like, oh no, you have to protect. It's almost like this animal instinct of like, I have to go protect my son. And that's such a crazy thing to be aware of that your body's just going to automatically react before your mind can come in with any kind of rational, like, okay, he's just a few feet away. Don't panic. Don't worry. Like your body is so quick to react. And I don't think a lot of people get that about mothers specifically. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not until you have a kid. I mean, you talk about like breastfeeding and stuff. I would, I've had so, I've got so many embarrassing stories of me just like standing around, like thinking about my kid without them being near me and your boobs just start leaking. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. what is happening here? (laughs) Ew, I'm like, this is it's so just all weird. happening. I'm so
0: sorry. So strange. At the I'm same just time, just I was fascinated it by it. Like, at the same time, I was so, I was like, look what my boobs can do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it's, it's some of it, I don't want to say Pavlovian because it is that I think every father can have that moment. Your husband probably isn't over this yet. But the constant need, are they still breathing? Mm-hmm. Because we don't have the parts. And so therefore, <laughs> no, I'm being serious. Psychologically, yeah. we're like, okay, how do I overcompensate? And I, I literally think it's this weird fight or flight, the, the no breathing thing. And my my daughter has an allergy, and we accidentally fed her something that has her allergy. <laughs> I do uh, no. And she got sick, and she was fine. She threw it up. But for the rest of the night, and this is five years on, five years later, for the next few days, the no breathing instinct kicked in. And I just couldn't help. I couldn't sleep because, but now I I see her as she's older. She's, she's getting wise and I have to call her out on the fake tears sometimes because she's oh, I know how to get something I want. Oh, I yeah. like, mm-hmm. You don't need to be crying about Octonauts. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's Octonauts. he will learn to use it against you. Octonuts, you know,
1: he's going to learn how to use it against you one day. Right now when I he's know. crying. He, he really and I'm going to let him.
2: I'm a sucker. I'm going <laughs> to let him. He's going <laughs> to get whatever he wants. Nah, you got to be an Asian mom about it. You got to be a dragon parent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be, be a tiger mom. Be like, no way. Not not falling for that.
0: Oh, I'll try. I'll try.
2: Channel the other shades of brown.
0: You know? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Meanwhile, I'm like, look at my little king. But he's <laughs> like, relax, so, Gina, relax.
1: Tell us a little bit about your husband. Where's he from,
0: and where did you? He's eye. No, <laughs>
1: he's I. He's, he's He's holding a'ight. your crying
0: baby now. He's he's a'ight. A'ight. He's I. <laughs> my husband. He's a musician. First of all, we met on a cruise ship. Oh.
2: In the before times.
0: (laughs) In the before times, when people were on cruise ships, we were both working on a cruise ship. Somebody recently asked me, it's so funny. Somebody recently asked me, do you remember why you fell in love with your husband? And I said, his heart. He's got the biggest heart of anyone I know. This man, I've never seen somebody with this capacity to love and this want to be loved in return. And- It was something I noticed right away about him. We would be, when we were on the ship together, like I said, I'm not a very social person. I have a lot of social anxiety in situations. So I quite often will sit by myself in a corner being quiet, which probably makes me look like I am a raging bitch, but I am not. (laughs) I guarantee you, I am just a painfully shy person. And on cruise ships, there's a crew bar for all of the workers to hang out in. And I would go to crew bar and I'd see my husband there and He would always be the guy that would like buy a tray of drinks for anybody at the bar, go up to random tables with a tray of beers and be like, You guys want beer? You guys want beer? You guys want beer? And I would just be like, just in awe. Cause to me, I'm like, He's talking to strangers. I was like, Oh my gosh, so brave. I would never. And then just being in awe of how social he was, but also just how genuine and how sweet he was. How he just, he didn't like that everybody would sit at separate tables in their little cliques. He wanted everybody to talk and hang out together. And so he would just try to bring people together. And I was just, I would watch that and I'd be totally charmed yeah, by how, just how sweet that is. And it's just the most, the most innocent thing to me. And so when we finally started talking, because like I had a crush on him right away. I always tell the story and he's like, you make me sound so mean. I had a crush on him. <laughs> right away. And he had no idea I existed because I figured I was like, oh, this guy, he's so nice. He probably has a girlfriend or like a wife. Like there's no way this dude's single. And so I was like, I'll just sort of have my crush from afar. And oh, you're about to hear my son because my son just came in the room. One night, my husband actually got to see me perform because usually our schedules kind of conflicted. And he came up to me, he was with his friends and he was just, I never got to see you perform before. You're so talented. And I think you're the most beautiful female comic I've ever seen. And I was like, that's very specific, but thank you. (laughs) Could have just said beautiful, but that's cool.
2: So many qualifiers. (laughs) Yeah, right.
0: Well, we ended up talking the whole night and we talked about music and he he was just so, he kept telling me how beautiful I was and me with how socially awkward I was with things. Like every time he said it, I was just like, and it was just, I thought I had messed it up because I figured I was too, I was like, I don't want to be too into this. Cause then I'm going to be the girl that might pressure him. Hi baby. Sorry. My son's looking at me. And then I was just, you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to enjoy it. And we would like hold hands under the table. It was like really cute dating stuff that we did. Yeah. And Then it was my time to leave the ship, and I was nervous that we weren't going to see each other again. But I was going to be back on the ship within two weeks. I was taking two weeks off, and then I was going to be back on. And we had just kind of talked. We were like, yeah, we'd kind of like to keep this going. (laughs) And so (laughs) we just sort of just talked and talked and talked. And then when I was back on the ship, we were inseparable. And it just, everything again just kind of fell into place. I was like, this feels right. And it sure was, because I think like a year or two later, we were engaged. And now you have a beautiful baby. And now I have my little my little king. Your little king. <laughs>
2: I got to ask, though, because I think I know this from having watched one of your specials. Yes. Is he from the Bronx?
0: <laughs> he is not. My husband is from the Midwest. He is very white. He is from the Midwest. <laughs> And that was always the thing where I was like I, was, I mean we talked about meeting each other's families and sort of mentally prepared each other for meeting yeah. each other's families. I'm like you're about to meet the loudest group of Puerto Ricans you've ever met in your life. Had and they're going and to love you instantly. Him. I was like they're going to I was like they're going to love you instantly. So you understand once you meet my parents, you are their child now. Oh. I was like that's just how it's going to be. You are their child. They were totally fine with it. That you brought home a Midwestern white guy. My dad has jokes for days, but yes, <laughs> my father has jokes for days about it. But they immediately just loved my husband. They start. It's so funny because I remember a week after meeting my parents, he was like, "Your dad's texting me," and I was like, "Yep, welcome to the family, sir. Oh. You are now part of the group family chat." That is it, no <laughs> take backs, you are part, you win it now, and then when I'm at. This time.
2: My wife has chosen to opt out of the group family (laughs) chat. But my brother-in-law, who is, my wife is Asian, I'm Asian, but my brother-in-law is Black in an Asian family, and he has to overcompensate to really be in on the family group chat. It's kind of amazing.
1: Yeah, my husband's Black, and my family posts all of the things they're cooking, so it'll be like dumplings and chow fun and stuff, and he's like, Your uncle just posted another picture of his roast duck. I was like, you got to tell him it looks good. Tell him it looks delicious. (laughs) And he was like, okay.
0: (laughs) Tell him it looks great. Just (laughs) thumbs up and tell him it looks great.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And was it reciprocal on the other side? Did your husband's family, were they welcoming with open arms as well?
0: Oh, are you kidding? They were so nervous to meet me. Yeah. They were so nervous to meet me, mainly because we came from very different political backgrounds. His family is very conservative and my family is as liberal as they get. And so their fear, they were more afraid of meeting me than I was of meeting them because I was like, I don't care what your political party is. I care that you're good people. Mm -hmm. Are you still good people? Can you hold true to what's your moral compass like? I don't really care about any of that other crap that doesn't mean anything to me. Those are all ideologies that at the end of the day don't really matter. But I need to know that you're a good person. And so my first question to my husband was, I know your parents are conservative. I know they are Christians. Do they know that my brother is openly gay and will that be a problem? Because we might as well end this relationship right now if it will be. And he was like, that won't be a problem. My parents are not like that. And I was like, okay, we'll see. And I met them. They were literally the most down-to-earth, sweet people, non-judgmental. It's like, they're just cool with Jesus, everybody. That's it. They're just, they're white people (laughs) that are cool with Jesus. And they don't want no trouble. They just want to be able to go to their church. They want to be good human beings. And they don't pass judgment on anybody. They're just good, wholesome people. And once I met them and I knew that, I knew we were in a good place. And they immediately just took me in like I was theirs too. So our families were similar in that way in their capacity to make you feel automatically like a family member. Yeah. You know, and, I think once
2: you strip out all of the surface stuff, yeah, it's how your families behave with each other or with you, right? If you observe your partner's family kind of behaves with them the same way, you know, you're going to be good. doesn't matter yeah. the color, the religion, any of that stuff.
0: It really doesn't. Once you get past all that and you get down to who people are, you can really see the beauty in people. If you can get past all this <laughs> the junk, that doesn't matter. In the end, it just doesn't matter, which is a hard place to be nowadays because I know politically people will shun you for what you believe in or whatever. But to me, that's never been important. I'm like, I'll only shun you if you're a crap person. So no, if I've ever shunned you, you're a crap person. Just know that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And there's something deeper at work.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Rest assured, this is not about (laughs) who you are politically or whether or not I find you funny. You're just a terrible human and I don't like you. (laughs)
1: That's a good basic, basic. That's a good basic barometer. <laughs> <laughs> so, Gina, we've so enjoyed our conversation with you, and I wish we could talk to you forever. But I think it's time now for speed round. Are you ready for speed oh, round?
0: Oh, man. oh, I'm as ready as I can be. <laughs> <laughs> I think someone else is ready for speed yeah. round. Well, my my son is like, I'm ready.
1: Mama, <laughs> you're <laughs> come ready. Come on, come on, mama. It's lunchtime. <laughs> What's one thing about you that no one expects?
0: Oh, that I have social anxiety. Yeah. No one expects that. They think because you're a comic, you're just, you're always on and you're always comfortable in rooms full of people. But if I'm not on stage, usually by myself somewhere, because that's what I prefer. Yeah.
2: Is there a book or a movie that, or even a TV show that has characters that you relate to?
0: Oh, goodness gracious. Yes. I mean, wow. There's so many. That's such a great question because first of all, I'm a book nerd. I love books. But all the books that I have or I own or that I get into are mainly books where I feel like I can learn something from. I don't get into fiction books. I get into a lot of self-help, spirituality, new agey type books. Like I'm a big Mark, Man- Mark Manson fan, if you've read any of his books. But I think the first time I ever connected with a writer was actually due to my English teacher in high school, Mr. Jeff Bouvier, who was a very impactful teacher. And he gave me a book the year I was graduating, which was, I think also coincidentally, the first and last year he taught in high school because he wanted to teach in college. And he gave me this book by Nicholson Baker. And he wrote in the book, and I, I think I have it somewhere in storage still. He wrote in the book, I think you'll like this writer, he thinks like us. And I remember just loving that this guy got me. Like he understood how my brain worked. And when he gave me this book, I cherished it. And see, my son is, my son's like, go mommy.
2: <laughs> He's like, I like the mezzanine, but other people prefer human smoke. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. He's like, I like all of my Contico's books, mommy. But yeah, I remember reading that book by Nicholson Baker and being like, yes, I totally, I get the way this guy writes. He was kind of quirky, but, and he was intelligent, but not pompous. I noticed with a lot of certain writers I would read, I'd be like, I get it. You know, a lot of words, geez. But <laughs> with this guy, he was obviously intelligent, but also very realistic in the language that he used, which I always appreciated. And I think the book was, what was the book about? The first book, oh, I think it was about the pattern of thoughts or something like that. And then the second book by Nicholson Baker that I read on my own was about I want to say it was about old newspapers for some reason. Like these these are the things that interest me sometimes, like these random <laughs> books. But it was Nicholson Baker would be the first writer I connected with. And as far as shows where I always connect with characters, it's always like a superhero character. I think I really have a hero complex. I got to talk to my therapist. I really think because I always connect with that superhero vigilante kind of out for justice kind of characters. yeah. 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 That's who I always sort of kind of like identify with.
2: What's one of your Disney. go-tos?
0: One of my go-tos is funny. I love all the Marvel movies, right? All right. Yeah. And personality-wise of a breakdown, I'm much more of an Iron Man than anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Attitude-wise, cool. more likely, like where anything is possible. And I think that's what I liked about that character. Yes, he was this, first of all, I love Robert Downey Jr. But just that, that sort of cockiness of I can get anything done. Mm-hmm. I can do anything and just, I can save the day. I know I can fix this. I think that's always sort of kind of my mentality, but I also do Andy that with fighters. Gen-
1: I feel like Tony Stark is a freaking
0: genius. Yeah. You just, to have that kind of brilliant mind, it's like, oh, I wish I could just, if I could create a little suit and then just
2: yeah, it's Yeah, it people. might not be solved. I haven't solved it yet.
0: Yes, 100%. Right. Like, I haven't solved it yet, but I think also connecting with, The power of somebody like Captain Marvel, when you look at that character, Mm -hmm. to show my nerdiness a little bit more. (laughs) Just even her backstory and the backstory they show in the movie of her having had this life on Earth and then having this completely different life when she's exposed to that, the one element that actually changes her physical chemistry. I'm such a nerd, but the Tesseract. <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but like, I'm like, don't say it. Don't do that, Gina. But yes. <laughs> and I just, I love the power that, cause what I loved about that character, what I loved about the Captain Marvel movie is them showing, I love anything that shows duality and struggle with duality because I think there's so much more duality in life than people actually recognize or admit to. And here was this character struggling with her origin story, essentially, and how she became who she was and, and where she falls on the spectrum of, am I more human or am I more this thing now, this new thing? And so that's, that's another one that I really connected with that. And I love the Creed movies and the boxing movies with Sylvester Stallone because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of heart and a lot of I'm the underdog that ends up winning, which is also a story I connect with. So Yeah.
1: What is your favorite mom dish?
0: Oh, a Mom dish that I make or mom dish that my mom makes? Both. Mom dish that my mom makes will always be baked ziti. My mom's baked ziti is... <laughs> and when she makes pernil, if we're talking about traditional Puerto Rican food, when she makes pernil... What is that? <laughs> pernil is roast pork and it's delicious. And my mom cooks it for hours. She starts the night before and... It is the most incredible thing. My mom is such an incredible cook.
1: It's a slow roasted pork shoulder ramen. And so when you get it, it's like, oh. it just
0: like falls right off the bone. It's Girl, yes. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. so delicious. And my mom can throw down my favorite mommy meal to make of late because I experiment with a lot of foods. I made vegan biscuit sliders. So I made Beyond Meat little vegan sliders.
1: Oh. And, and they he's, he's old like so enough good. to like pick it up and chew. He's got, how old is your baby?
0: He's 10 months. I'll break off little pieces of whatever I eat. I just make sure that it's not too spicy. There's not too much seasoning in it for him. And then I usually give him just little pieces of what I eat. I'm I'm a little bit careful with proteins so that his body can get used to digesting proteins. But yeah, he's had chicken before and stuff like that. But yeah, that's my favorite dish as of late that I've made. What's your least favorite food? arugula seriously fuck arugula i can't if i see one more plate of arugula somewhere (laughs) i'm going to lose my mind i hate arugula with such a passion and they put it on everything why is it on pizza why is arugula on pizza i didn't order grass shavings really good question here's what i'm gonna
2: Here's what I love is the hate. This is what I love about that question. We've had so many guests recently like, I don't know. I don't like, and I'm like, no. Okay. To be clear, you know, we're on opposite sides of the arugula argument, but I respect the hate. You got to yes. hate something or you yes. stand for nothing when it exactly. comes
0: to food. Exactly. <laughs> I can feel how much you hate that arugula. There's so much vitriol on, in your voice. I was voice at a show <laughs> in, in Washington state somewhere and- I think it was in Washington. It may not have been Washington. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. But they took me to this restaurant. I ordered a salad and the salad was all arugula. And I swear to God, they put it in front of me. And I've never had such hatred in my face <laughs> for a dish that was placed in front of me to the point where the booker of this show, whenever I see arugula, I send her pictures of the arugula. I'm like, this is just a reminder of how much I hate arugula. <laughs>
1: I'm sure you have many answers for this question. Who is someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast?
0: Oh, good grief. Keanu Reeves.
1: Keanu Reeves. Why?
0: I find his story fascinating. I find his personality fascinating. I've seen him in the city before, literally just chilling like he's not Keanu Reeves, just sitting there with his (laughs) Keanu Reeves face, being Keanu Reeves. (laughs) and just acting like he's not who he is. And I'm just like, he just seems like an interesting person that I would love to talk to and be you just seem so cool. And he's had so many different things in his life that have just been so many traumatic things. And he seems to have this, this stoic attitude almost of getting over some of this stuff. And I just think I just think he's really amazing. He just comes across as an amazing person just based on the interviews I have seen and some of the people that I know that have met him that I've gotten some insider information on where I'm like, he just seems like a really dope person to sit down and talk with. That would be a dream interview, I think. But if I could do Dead or Alive, it would be George Carlin, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I would interview Carlin.
2: Two fantastic choices. Yeah. Gina, last question. What does being... Yeah, I know. (laughs) But what does being a modern minority mean for you?
0: Well, being a modern minority for me means so many things, mainly seeing different things change in what we're fighting for, seeing the wins from when I was a child, seeing different things and getting annoyed to a certain extent at the battles we're still fighting for justice, for equality, for all that. And also being able to have open conversations. I think a lot of what being a modern minority is, is to have the bravery to have these discussions, whether it's panel discussions, whether it's discussions on podcasts, discussions on colorism, discussions on code switching, discussions on Black Lives Matter and other issues and social injustices and systematic issues. I think those conversations are being had now more than ever. And what I will give credit to millennials for is that they are setting up the dominoes for Gen Z to really get things done. Millennials are putting into place practices and ideals and changing certain ideologies that have been in practice for so long just by asking questions. I did this bit, I think it was on the special where I talk about how all millennials did was like they came in and saw all the stuff we were putting up with for so many millennia, so many decades or whatever. And they looked at it and they were like, you guys know you don't have to put up with that, right? You guys know you can, (laughs) you can, you can change that. You can actually stop that. You just, and we were like, whatever nerds. And we just kind of ignored (laughs) what they said. But in reality, they are really as annoyed as you might be at millennials. Take notice of the changes that they are making because those changes will be what Gen Z lives and implements in their life. So the millennials are setting up these dominoes for Gen Z to knock down. And I appreciate that because it's because of them that I can get books for my son. My manager sent me a book called C is for Consent, which to Boomers and Gen Z seems like a ridiculous book to give to a child, but it starts as their children teaching them lessons. And these lessons that we weren't given. Think of how many times as a little boy you were told, boys don't cry, boys don't get upset, don't be emotional, stop being a wuss, stop being this. It's because of the fight that millennials are fighting for in terms of language, in terms of being fair to people that we are able to raise our children to be much more aware, much more tolerant, and much more emotionally intelligent. And so be thankful for those things because no other generation before has taken those steps.
2: And they're necessary ones too. Very much so. Overdue, some would say. Yeah. Gina, this has been so much fun. Thank you for just making the time, even with the little one around. (laughs) (laughs) He was an extra guest. Yeah. And- We can't wait to see what's next from you. And we can't wait to keep watching and listening. So thanks for doing what you do. Thank you
0: so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you you for the great conversation.
2: And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
1: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three.
2: Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com.
1: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
2: That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And
1: I'm still Sharon Lee Tony.
2: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
1: We'll talk to you soon.